when we think beyond Earth, when we think cosmically, it becomes very unifying for people. And I think that the International Space Station is a great example of what that could look like. You can see pictures of our universe, but seeing that with your own eyes, there, I'm sure there's just nothing like that experience and you would forever be a changed individual. Welcome back to episode 13 of the Can I Tell You Something podcast. Yes, we have an exciting episode for you all about space. Once again, we're thinking cosmically, and this episode is really grounded around the International Space Station. We're going to go over some of the history of the International Space Station briefly, and then we are going to train to become astronauts and do experiments on the International Space Station. So the episode structure is kind of as follows. We're first going to talk about the joy of the YouTube videos that people on the ISS will post online and being able to see what it's like living in space. Then we are going to create an experiment that we will be conducting while in space. And then we're going to go through some training so we know how to live on the ISS. And finally, we're going to come back home, wrap it all up with our classic debrief with some help from astronaut Scott Kelly. I am so excited because we, we recently took a little deep dive into NASA's live streaming on Roku. I, I, is it NASA Plus? Something it, like that? It's just like NASA Live or NASA TV. That's NASA what they call TV. it. So that's kind of what inspired this episode. And so if any of you out there are familiar with that, you will be primed and ready for this episode. Yes, this is the section where I'm going to spill some of my my childhood YouTube experience, which was binging videos from the International Space Station. I remember being in high school when I was first taking my when I was first taking physics learning about calculus, all the, the really STEMI things. I really wanted to be an astronaut. And I fell down the rabbit hole of videos from the International Space Station from a bunch of different astronauts showing what it's like to live up there. And for this episode, I, you know, I got to revisit a lot of the videos I watched years ago. So it felt very nostalgic for me. And I also wanted to ask you... Did you ever watch any of those videos growing up or ever find them on YouTube? No, I was in a different space than YouTube. I think I was going to say your deep dive into YouTube seems like the most healthy and safe route a child could go down. <laughs> yeah. I was on, on a different side for, for sure. <laughs> um, but I mean, of course, I've seen some of the classic videos that they show in like elementary science. And things like that. But I've never taken a deep dive until I found NASA TV. Yeah. Um, and so I know it's very nostalgic for you. But for me, this is kind of a new thing. But growing up, um, my family and specifically my dad was just enthralled with space. And I've mentioned that a decent amount on this podcast. And specifically, the International Space Station is something that he really, really Loves And so oftentimes he'll have their flyover times um, for where he lives on his phone. And, you know, throughout my childhood, we'd go outside and watch it. And, it, you know, it just looks like a little satellite almost going across the sky. But it, it's always fascinating to me to think that there are human beings on I don't know if it's a ship. What would you call it? Station. The state. I mean, it's yeah. like literally a, like an outpost. Yeah. Whereas other satellites, of course, it's just. A hunk of junk in space yeah. but the international space station is is super cool because humans are a part of it so that would be my childhood connection yeah to space i i really like how we're coming from or coming at this from two different perspectives because i get to share a little bit of my childhood experience with you and we get to do it around the international space station which we both love that's well established now so one of the important things, if you're going to become an astronaut, there's a few few different ways you can 
hitch a ride up to the International Space Station. One of which is if you're out there to help expand or repair the International Space Station. There's a lot of maintenance requirements. The things in space. The, the mechanics of the astronaut world. The mechanics, the engineers. And I think, and I believe that that's where a lot of the engineer astronaut pipeline comes into play. But the other side of it is there are, or all the scientists that go up there are doing research, doing very important research for us back on Earth. There have been a lot of weird discoveries, crazy discoveries that have happened just through researching what it's like to live on the International Space Station or conducting little experiments up there. So for us to get our one or hopefully round trip ticket to the International Space Station, we need to come up with an experiment. So I'm first going to start this off with what is something that you've always wanted to do in space? And then we're going to follow it up with how can we frame that like an experiment so that we can get permission from NASA to, to hop aboard one of their ships? So before I answer this, I do need to disclose that I have never had the desire to be an astronaut. Of course, I've had the dream to be in space, but then realizing specifically all the like physical things and conditions your body goes through and me in my non-healthy state not being able to do that. And so when you ask what's something that you've always wanted to do or test in space, well, I don't have that. And so right before the episode, I just made up kind of a random silly one when yeah. I was looking at our dog. And it was, if I had a dog or a pet, maybe even my buddy Francis up in the space station, how would I take them for a walk? That's fantastic. Actually, and you would be, um, you wouldn't be too far off of existing research on the International Space Station. They do a lot of research about plant life, what it's like to have plants grow there. There have been some animals that have gone up to space to see how they adapt to zero gravity. Well, we know about yeah. those experiments, and mine would not be like that. I wouldn't be sending a dog out to die. Yeah. Personally, that's not how I would um, lead my operations. Yes, yes. But it's a genuine question because, you know, we're so used to a way of life here on Earth with gravity. Yeah. And when you go up into space, and we'll get into those videos a little bit later, but just everyday things become so much different. Yeah. Like drinking water, taking a shower, going to the bathroom, sleeping, There's eating. A whole host of like different how, things, like, yeah. For instance, also, how would you cook macaroni? Like a really, really <laughs> basic meal for here, or yeah. like Top Ramen or something would be... So much different. How do you even heat up water? But now I'm getting ahead of myself. So I need to ground ourselves back in my experiment. Of walking course. a dog. Because obviously you can't walk mm -hmm. in space. You kind of float. Yeah. And so the same would be for any life form. Like a dog. Like our dog Ruth. Who will hopefully make an appearance here soon. How would I take her for a walk? And also... Now I'm just getting the ball rolling in my yeah. mind. How big is the International Space Station? Like, would I have to do laps? Or is there a track where people can stay fit? So many questions piling up in my brain. Honestly, and now I'm thinking about what is it like for Rue to have zoomies up on the International yeah, Space also, Station? Yeah, like just dog behavior in general. Because then humans have to adapt. Dogs would have to adapt to a different way of life. And how do you, how do you like, convey to a dog that they're no longer on earth you can't <laughs> so they just assume they're you know they're in a silly new place yeah and these are the new rules and gravity's been turned off and gravity's been turned off but the way i would frame this if i were to have to get funding mm -hmm. is probably testing um like animal behavior patterns through a change of environment Animal behavior and exercise and non -gra in zero gravity or microgravity environments. Exactly. And yeah. that sounds like a thesis paper in itself. But exactly. my real want and desire is just to see how little Ruthie would go for a walk. I like to think that most of the experiments that happen on the International Space Station, or at least a good handful of them, are 
people wanting to try something in space, but needing to f- structure it as a research paper. Well, I think that's just a lot of science. Yeah, that's in that's general actually too, and really probably true. like oh, just a lot yeah. of physics. And we oh, yeah. like, of course, one of our best friends is studying physics, and it's just funny to see all of the research going into some silly everyday things. I really like that. So to recap, my question would be, how does a dog go for a walk in space? Yeah. What would yours be? I would want to figure out how to paint in space. Or make art that's typically a bit messy, but in space. And I say that, we'll get into it a little bit more, but liquids are really weird in space because there's no gravity. Right. I'm thinking I'm thinking of like a traditional artist space and they have their palette and their mixed paints might be off to the side, but in space I mean that palette's floating, the yeah. paints are floating in the back here, you have to go grab them. I mean that kind of sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. But on the flip side, could you imagine someone in space, you know, painting something beautiful? How much that would sell for on earth? Oh yeah. With the like made in space label? Like Get rid of the Made in China label. Made yeah. in Space labels the new thing. <laughs> I well, I could also see something happening where, like, let's say you're you put a glob of paint on a canvas, right? You can make it really globby, and then it would just dry. Like you could paint quite three dimensionally in space. But to do so, you'd probably have to change the makeup of the paint because I don't know if it would actually dry, dry. But that yeah. that could be the way that you you know frame your experiment is like how does the ph makeup of this acrylic (laughs) paint change with zero gravity or like the structural properties of different paint compositions in microgravity yeah so i'd want to figure out how to do like arts and crafts in space and just make it a experiment testing a material but for arts and crafts so now that we have of course, gotten our funding from... Everything was approved. Everything was approved. They're like, yeah, fair enough. Let's send you out to space. I'm going to play our little space introduction video, which is a two-minute time-lapse of all the changes that have happened to the International Space Station. While that's going on for our non-visual folk, I will be reading out loud some of the important information about this establishment. Are you ready? I'm ready. Welcome to the International Space Station. The International Space Station was launched on November 20th, 1998, making it 24 years old today. It has seven full-time crew and 10 people currently aboard. 251 people have visited the International Space Station. The International Space Station has completed 141,000 orbits, averaging about 15 and a half orbits per day. It takes the International Space Station 92.9 minutes to circle the Earth. It averages a speed of 17,000 miles an hour. Its lowest altitude above the Earth is 256.6 miles, and its highest altitude is 262.2 miles. The size of the station is 358 feet long and 239 feet wide. And its altitude decays by two kilometers every month, or just over a mile every month. It gets closer to the Earth, so they have to kind of speed it up. And that's it. That's your, your basic high-level overview of what the International Space Station is. And you said that there are 21 different countries that have visited. Yeah, I just wanted to make it super clear. Obviously, it's in the name, International Space Station. But in the U.S., a lot of people myself included, sometimes forget that there are other people in this world. And so I (laughs) wanted to read um, the other countries who have been to the International Space Station. So obviously the United States, Canada, Brazil, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, Great Britain, the Netherlands, Belgium, Spain, France, Italy, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Kazakhstan, Russia, Dubai, South Korea, Japan, Malaysia, and South Africa. Beautiful. All right, now that we have launched up to the International Space Station, 
let's let's meet the person that I believe has the record for the longest time up on the ISS. I'm sorry, I still have just a burning question. Yeah. You read the the size yes. of the International Space Station, but in feet, that's really hard for me to see in my brain. Yeah. So do you have like a X amount of football fields or that kind of conversion? Oh, yes. It's about the size of a football field. It's 109 meters That's long. That's it? Just one? 70, yeah, just one football field. One football field? Mm-hmm. That is small. I yeah. mean, I guess I didn't expect it to be this giant you, Star Trek warship, but still, I thought it'd be bigger than that. You, you want to get the International Space Station a little bigger. I don't think it'd be such a bad idea. I, I kind of agree with it, you. Well, hold on. Depends okay. where the funds are coming from. I know a lot of people out there are like, why would we spend money on things that aren't helping our Earth? I get it right there with you. But if some silly little billionaire out there decided they wanted to fund it, I wouldn't be mad. I also do want to add that a lot of the research that happens on the International Space Station and within NASA in general has a direct benefit to our environment. I know that burning a lot of rocket fuel to go up to space and all that is not great, but the work that NASA is doing, a lot of it is centered around life and like sustainability and what it means to exist within the cosmos and just learning that, more about that. I think that. that's great too. And obviously there's two sides yeah. to every argument. Of um, course. And we have to acknowledge both. All right. So this comes from a, a course that I found on NASA's website. It's just the introduction video for it. But I like it just because it kind of goes over. Uh, it, it's like a course that teaches people's skills that apply to the International Space Station and also to everyday life. So let's get into it. Here's our intro. I'm astronaut Peggy Whitson. Have you ever wondered how astronauts get through a mission on the International Space Station? NASA trains us in expeditionary skills, including things like self-care and team care, cultural competency, leadership and followership, teamwork and communication. These skills prepare us to live and work together on long-duration space flights. In this series, you'll hear stories about how astronauts use these skills in space, and you'll meet what I call the NASA Village, the team behind the scenes that uses these same techniques to ensure mission success. You'll have the opportunity to develop and practice these skills too, and learn about their importance in STEM careers. Expeditionary skills. They work for us in space, they work for us here on Earth, and they will help you achieve your goals. You know, coming hot off the heels of a life coach episode, I trust Peggy way more to give me life advice than he who must not be named. I do too. And really anyone who's just been off of our planet, I feel like has enough wisdom to be able to teach you some things. Yes. I mean, being able to see the world from space... Uh, we'll get into this kind of later um, with what Scott Kelly has to say about that. But it changes people pretty profoundly. And I think what's also interesting, you brought up the the idea that it is the International Space Station. Um, that means that there's a lot of cooperation between different countries for this and between people from different backgrounds and from different parts of the world, all with that common love for space. Yeah, I can imagine if you are sent up there for a period of time. The idea of your nationality or even your ethnicity might kind of lessen because at that point, you're all just the human race. You're no longer on Earth. And I'd be curious to ask people who have lived up there and had to cooperate and maybe speak different languages or find different ways to communicate because those things that kind of put you into boxes in Earth, like where you're from and where you live, they don't apply in space anymore. And I yeah. think that's really cool. Because another thing I was thinking about was, okay, if this is a really small 
vessel and you get in a fight with someone or you don't get along, like, what do you do? How do you get your alone time? Where do you go if you need to like slam a door and storm off? Do you just like hop off the station for a little while, go, go do a little float and pop back on? Like, it's really interesting how the dynamics of human behavior would also change. Yeah, I, I mean, I would imagine it. It you would get cabin fever type symptoms, you know. I mean, how could you not? And yeah. obviously, they're testing all of that before you go up to make sure that you won't um, have a crazy little attack up there and go go axe murder vibes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's there are so many movies and you know Hollywood variations of that general story. Like people go crazy in space. And I think it's entirely, it's believable to enter that headspace. That's why these, there aren't that many people that have ever gone to space. Um, Do you know how long, like the average astronaut would go up to the space station? Is it a couple months? It, it's kind of all over the board. It depends on what they're doing. If they're doing maintenance, it'll be, I, I imagine, a shorter period of time. You're up there, do some maintenance and go back to Earth. And then... Um, there are some examples of astronauts that part of their research that they're doing is to see what it's like to be up there longer. Um, so and, it kind of depends on what mission or purpose you have. Actually, something just popped into my brain that's a little bit of a weird intrusive thought. Yeah. But I was thinking of, okay, NASA's a corporation. They're a company that mm -hmm. has employees. If you are Peggy Whitson or just an astronaut in general, you might have like a LinkedIn page or a Google calendar, like your online workspace. And <laughs> maybe for like on Monday, you have to block out your day because you're like going to space. Sorry, be back next out week. Out of the office. Yeah, I'm out of office. But actually yeah. you're not because space is your office. It's, it's really fascinating to me, like just peering into other people's professional lives because that's what an astronaut is. Like they are an employee of... NASA, I'd assume, or mm -hmm. whatever else other organization they might be in. Like, they're not doing it for fun. This is their career and their day job. Yeah, it, they are getting paid to do this. They're getting paid to do this. But, of course, it is for fun, too. Yeah. But I think it's, it's kind of cool to just ground yourself and, like, that's their day job mm -hmm. is being in space. Yeah, even if it's for like they they have to prep for a ten day mission or a week long mission, prepping you know getting your presentations ready the night before. No, for them it's like gonna be out of the office doing some field work. Like yeah, I, I would assume it's like a field work style thing. I don't know. I just wanted to put that in everyone's brain because I I think it's a fun way to think about it. Yeah, I agree. All right, so with that general thematic introduction to our basic training program. It's time for us to meet our instructor. And I've decided our instructor will be Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield. Woo! And I've picked, or I picked Chris Hadfield because it was his videos that I watched the most of when I was on my YouTube binges looking at space content back in the day. And so I thought, who better to introduce us to space and walk us through a lot of the the day-to-day than an instructor I've, I've vetted out myself. Of course. So right here, this is, you're going to hear Chris Hadfield talk about his experience in space. And then we'll get into some more of the like questions that we might have about living up there. So introducing Chris Hadfield. I decided to be an astronaut on July 20th, 1969, because that's the night that Neil and Buzz walked on the moon while Mike was orbiting around. And uh, I was nine, almost ten. And I watched it over at a neighbor's place. We didn't have a TV. And over at a neighbor's place, watched a whole bunch of people crowded in the living room, walked outside, looked up at the moon, and in my little nine-year-old boy's brain said, wow, I'm, I'm going to grow up to be something. I think I want to grow up to be that, that looks like an interesting thing to do with my life. And so I consciously decided, well, I did like a million other kids, but I consciously decided on, uh, on that night. So I was very much inspired uh, by the early pioneers in space, by the early explorers, and by the tremendous capability that comes with a challenge like, uh, like spaceflight. 
So that's Chris's take on why he wanted to become an astronaut. Sounds like you. Yeah. Except you, you grew up to be podcaster. Close <laughs> <laughs> enough, right? You know, <laughs> I, I grew up to, I initially wanted to do like engineering stuff. I think we've covered it a bit in this podcast. But what's interesting is that the human-computer interaction side of NASA is quite robust. Um, and like looking at their old research and all that, it makes me still feel like I can kind of live vicariously through it. So. There's still a possibility yeah. to be involved somehow. And I, I even use some of their like user testing guides and all that because I just think it's neat. So that's why Chris wanted to go to space. And now let's actually get into to the juice of all of this, which is what is it like living in space? And, you know, I'd watch your ears if you're, uh, you know, sitting with, with young children, but how do you go to the bathroom in space? <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious why you're censoring that for young children. I don't know. This is a question I've had too, because like I mentioned earlier, your everyday practices that you just take for granted here on Earth, they change so much in space. Yes. So you have to be very diligent about how, how you go about some, some basic bodily functions. And I, I want to present this challenge of water in space. Like, yes, we have going to the bathroom. That's a whole thing. But I really want to focus in on water on the International Space Station. And more specifically within that, knowing how heavy water is and how expensive and difficult it is to take heavy things and send them up to space. So because water is so heavy and whatever's on the International Space Station is kind of all you got, they have to recycle a lot of their water. And that is done through recycling sweat, through recycling urine, through dehydrating various things. And... When these videos were coming out, their ability to reclaim water was in the low 90s, or like low 90%. Um, what, what do you mean by that? So they, if we were to drink a liter of water or a gallon of water, and the, the International uh, Space Station would be able to reclaim just over 90% of that water after it is passed through us, after our body's done using it, so every bit of water you're going to, like however much water a human needs per day, 90% of it will be available tomorrow, more or less. Okay. And now it's actually up to 98%. So it's like they've gotten even better at reclaiming water. And it's just kind of mind boggling to think of what it would be like to recycle water that effectively. Because that's something where, you know, this is where I would go into the environmentalist argument for the International Space Station. Being able to reclaim water is really important for all life. So this is what Chris has, Hadfield has to say about how water is recycled on the International Space Station. Water consumption is critical on Earth, but even more so here on the International Space Station, where we have a closed environment. From washing ourselves to making our coffee, or even when we sweat, the water that gets expelled is collected into a purification system. And we reclaim about 93% of all the water on board. Definite soapy water here in space. Mix it up. Well, get some on the outside, apparently. Water used to be delivered in water-filled bags like this one. We brought them up on uh, on space shuttles, and of course, all of for those of you who can't vehicles. see this, this kind of looks like a pillowcase full of water. We got a system on board that can purify the water real time, and you then it, it looks like they're inflating bags. a Capri Sun through the we wall. We have filters and a keg-sized distiller that spins to create artificial gravity and move the wastewater along. And with it, we can recycle about 6,000 liters of extra water for the station each year. We even recycle our urine. <laughs> Before you cringe at the thought of drinking your leftover wash water and your leftover urine, keep in mind that the water that we end up with is purer than most of the water that you drink on a daily basis at home. Yeah. That makes the International Space Station its own self-contained environment. That's a critical step towards living for long periods off of planet Earth. 
that's just amazing. It really right. is because I don't know when obviously you showed me this. I never even thought that water would be an issue. And I know that's probably a very naive take on it, but I was assuming, oh, they're getting supplies shipped up to them. Water is going to be included in that. And of course it has to be at some point you have to get the water there. But then when you're in space, you always have to be prepared. What if my communication goes dark from earth? What if we get disconnected somehow? Well, you still have to be a self-sustaining vessel and so I really liked how he said that like it's a closed environment and they're kind of you know they're in their own little world no little space pun intended but they are and I think that's that's really cool I think you you touched on one of my favorite bits about these videos which is I mean you have some of the smartest people on earth that go up to the international space station to do research but what I'm always impressed with is how good they are at communicating what it's like living up there and you know working through some of these metaphors and some of these ideas of no no one on earth aside from astronauts knows what it's like living in space so how do you describe what that's like how do you describe why all that machinery is necessary and yeah it's it's wonderful watching these videos because you know, 99 plus percent of people, unless you're actively thinking about like, how would I survive in space? Wouldn't think about water being an issue and wouldn't think about the the intricacies of sanitation up there. No, because it's not something, well, at least in the United States that most people have to worry about. Yeah. I mean, just getting water, let alone making sure the water is clean. Yeah. So that brings us to, okay, we figured out the liquid side of stuff. We saw the Capri Sun looking bag fill up out of the wall. Um, This is where we get into dessert in space because guess what? We got to eat. And there are space desserts. And before we get into this, Chris is going to show us a dessert and some coffee. And it reminded me of a quote that I found in my research where they say that like today's waste is tomorrow's coffee when talking about the water reclaiming up in space. Oh. It's like, oh, it's tomorrow's coffee. Oh my gosh. So I mean, they they have to keep the humor up there. They, yeah. They'd go crazy if they didn't. <laughs> and that, real quick before we get into this, that reminds me that like one of the great things about this research being done in the past decade and people being on the International Space Station is YouTube and YouTube rewarded this fun playing in space environment. And so that's why, I mean, all these videos, people are still visiting them. They love them. I love them and they're just fun. So shout out YouTube, shout out YouTube, great platform for this sort of stuff. So here's a little dessert in space with our good friend, Chris. Chocolate pudding cake. Looks like it too. Not bad. Gonna be hard to eat. Gonna be messy. <laughs> it kind of looks like it, Chris. Very <laughs> <laughs> good. Mm-mm. That'd be good with coffee. Here's a cup of coffee. That's not a cup. Stick That's a bag. <laughs> Mix it up. Oh yeah. Carefully open the straw. In the mouth. The straws almost look like medical equipment. Yeah. But coffee. Everything's so like engineered up there. Chocolate cake and coffee. Food's not so bad. (laughs) Chris, I think you might be lying to us. That (laughs) that cake didn't look so good. For for people without the visual, Chris reached into with a long spoon, might I add, because the long very long. Very long, like a milkshake spoon, reached into a like a you know, a metally looking bag and pulled out kind of a brown blob. Yeah. And then ate it. And then stuck a straw in another Capri Sun bag. But before he (laughs) ate it, he, you know, threw it out into the air for us to observe. (laughs) Oh yeah. 
And oh, then yeah. he he motioned over with his mouth and chomped it. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I space food is kind of its own yeah. topic. I don't think we have a lot of time to get into it in this episode, but there is one little story that I have that just reminds me of when I learned what space food even was. And it was when I used to go camping um, with my family and then like my best friend's growing up's family. And camping is kind of like space food, I feel like. You're kind of eating scraps or you might bring stuff that you know, is meant to last for a while. And so something that I used to have in the morning as a kid was tang. And I don't know if any of you out there have had it, but it's this like orangey powder that you add to hot water. (laughs) And as a kid, I mean, it was the greatest thing I'd ever had in my life. I'm sure if I drank it now, I'd be maybe more or less disgusted by it. But um, I just remember like my dad telling me, you know, that's what they drink up there in space. And that kind of opened my world up to, whoa, space food. Yeah. And then learning like all the powders and um, like, uh, what is it? Dehydrated. Yeah. Dehydrated, freeze dry. Like there's, they will get every bit of weight out of that food because people got to eat. Which I understand, and, and you know, I have yeah. to, I have to hand it to you, Chris. You said it looked good. You'd probably been up there for a while. Maybe, <laughs> maybe you forget what real cake looks like. <laughs> I'm glad that you had, you know, something to keep you a little bit happy up there. Because I mean, I'm sure that they just get so used to horrible food, or they get just like kind of sick of it. It's like I need anything but well, this. Of course, they're gonna yeah. like. Everyone's gonna fantasize about. <laughs> eating their favorite food when they when they come back. Yeah, it's like, that's true. You don't have the luxury of just ordering Postmates on the ISS. No. Maybe in a couple hundred years, <laughs> but not right now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The the food situation is is dire up there. Yeah. But I do want to put an ask out there. If any of you have had Tang or even heard about it, let me know because I want to see if like that's an experience a lot of people had or that was just super niche because of my dad. In space. I well, they also sometimes sell, especially in like space themed museums, like little astronaut food samples. Oh, oh, we should have gotten some for the episode. Yeah, I don't I don't know where to get it here. You could probably order it on Amazon these days. Probably. I was thinking like when I said camping food is really similar to space food. Yeah. When you go to like outdoor stores, mm-hmm. um, they sell food for like backpacking trips. Oh, and sometimes they sell it there too. Yeah, and it's like packaged really similarly. Yeah, and, you know it can't be good. It just can't <laughs> be good. You know, it's it's past. It's probably past greater food safety standard tests than most of food in America. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure because they have to make sure you're getting all of your nutrients. Yeah. Oh, it'd be really interesting. It also reminds. I mean, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but MREs, uh, meals ready to eat, mm. what the military uses. That's a whole other really interesting bit. Okay. But we just finished up dessert. As you can see, Chris alluded to the idea that dessert can be a little bit messy up in space. And so we need to wash our hands. Right? You may be Always. asking, how do, we, how do you wash your hands in space? Because there is no gravity, which means that you can't use a sink and a faucet. So what are you using? And thankfully, Chris has all the answers for this one. Look closely at the camera. You can see this. It is no rinse body bath. No rinse body bath. And it's a bag with a straw. So now let's demonstrate. Okay, it's time to get clean. I'm going to squirt some water out. Also, just observe his expertise operating in zero gravity here. He's like floating objects around. A ball of water and you put it on your hand. And now I've got water floating around on my hand. And so I wash my hands up with that. It kind of looks like how a hand sanitizer kind of floats on your hand. Yeah. And dry them off. So that's how we do it. Look at all the floating objects. Is he just like wearing a a Rolex up there? Look at that. It's probably probably like a diver watch of some kind. Um... You float a ball I've of seen water a lot in front of, of yourself, and then you just dry your towel. And when you're done, we just tuck our towel somewhere 
to let it air dry so that the evaporated water gets back into the space station and we can use that water again. So it works pretty well. Sort of like, um, maybe sort of like if you were on a sailboat and you needed to take it clean, you do it sort of the same way. That's a great little analogy. Yeah. People, I think, can relate to that one a little bit. Like, Chris, once again, having a wonderful analogy to help clarify what's going on here. Um, but yeah, so that's how you wash your hands in space. I, I think one of the the bits that made the most sense to me growing up to think about how does water work in space, water is like sticky in space. It just clings to things. It holds on. It looked, like I said, hand sanitizer. Right? Kind of ooey gooey. And so it it's also so weird because like if I have a blob of water in my hand, right? If I have a blob of water in my hand and I took one of those Capri Sun looking things and I squeeze more water into it, the blob would just turn into an orb. Or it like just it would gets bigger cover and my bigger hand. Like, and so it just gets really blobby and weird. And it's so cool to see it play out in real time because that doesn't happen here. I wonder how that feels though, because it doesn't look like it feels necessarily wet. That, I mean, it, that's it, a whole other thing. It has to, right? It's water, but. I'm sure that the sensory would feel vastly different on your skin. I have a fact. I have a fact. Oh, you have a fact. I have a fact. Okay, so I way back when I took a a neurobiology course, and one of the things that they talked about was how do we perceive when things are wet, right? And it's a combination of senses. It's pressure and temperature, which... Because I was thinking about the idea, if you have, if you get into a body of water that is the same temperature, like perceivably as the air around you, how could you tell what's wet and what isn't? Or would your body get confused? And so at least here, I would imagine that the temperature element would be what you would use to detect whether or not something is wet, but the pressure element wouldn't be the same. So maybe it, maybe we've unlocked a new sense. Yeah, I... There are probably so many different senses that get I think that weird. using my, my visual sense here, <sighs> I would describe it as gooey. Yeah. Without having gooey. ever touched it in space, that looks gooey. <laughs> Water, yeah, that's gooey. <laughs> so whenever I have a big old snack or a big meal, I get a little bit sleepy. And I would imagine that after eating dessert and washing your hands like a good ISS passenger, you too would be a bit sleepy. Which brings up the question, how do you sleep in space? This is really important. What, what is it like to catch some Zs out of Earth? Chris, can you explain? In order to make it comfortable for the astronauts, originally they were going to put us all in one habitation module with sleep stations all around it. But the way a station was eventually built, we have sleep stations inside Node 2, which is in the forward part of the station, and inside the service module, which is in the aft. A total of six small bedrooms, sleep stations, or sleep pods. And inside each one is just a sleeping bag tied to the wall. I oh. think it's uncomfortable not having a mattress and a pillow, but without gravity, of course, you don't need anything to hold you up. You can just completely relax. And you don't even need a pillow. In space, you don't even have to hold your head up. So you can relax every muscle in your body, and your arms float up in front of you, your head tips forward. But before I go to sleep, i got to put it in my pajamas, because I have space jammies. I'll be right back. Yeah. Right. I'm in my super comfy Russian full-length pajamas. Those do look comfy. Nice they really do. And uh, ready to go to bed. Show you where I sleep. Also, love this sequence. He's just floating around the stage. Like, because this is the easiest way to get around. You're not walking, you're just pulling and throwing your body around. This is my sleep station, my sleep pod. This is uh, where I spend up to eight hours every day here on board the space station. It's actually on the floor, but uh, once you're inside, you just can't tell. That's also another weird thing. This is the cutest thing. He's just getting into his bag. Yeah. And he's trying to keep the door open so we can see what's going on. It looks like those little sleep sacks that babies 
Yeah. Where? I see. I think that sleeping in space, it might take a bit of getting used to, but I bet you you get some pretty good sleep. I was going to say when he said like, you can. When he was talking about like just letting all of your muscles relax, I wonder if you'd get maybe your best sleep ever. Yeah. In space because you don't have all of the external pressure that gravity puts on your body. Yeah. I I think so. I I dream so actually. Wow. Yeah. All right. So now we're all asleep, right? And suddenly we wake up in the middle of the night because no. our bodies may be freaking out that we're in zero gravity. Maybe we have a nightmare where we're missing home. And so it really brings up the question, what happens if you cry in space? You recycle your tears, I bet. <laughs> so this is what it looks like to cry in space. Oh. Chris will show us. Don't worry, Chris is not actually crying in this video. He's just demonstrating what it would look like. And I just think it's a little bit silly. So here's a common question. Can you cry in space? Do tears work? Well, let's try it out. I can't cry on command, but I'm going to take some water, drinking water, put it in my eye just as if I was crying. Let's see what happens. Get myself nice and stable for you here. I love how committed he is to these questions. Yeah. So, just as if I started crying, my eye is full of tears. But you can see it just forms a ball on my eye. In fact, I can put more water in it. This looks like euphoria makeup. And so if you that keep crying, <laughs> you just end up with a bigger and bigger ball of water in your eye. It looks like a, like the under eye silicone mask. Your nose and yeah. Gets into your other eye or evaporates or maybe spreads over your cheek or you grab a towel and dry it up. So yes, I've gotten things in my eye. Your eyes will definitely cry in space, but the big difference is tears don't fall. All right, so we just had Chris tell us what happens if we cry in space. And I think that, you know, when I'm out there doing my research, my experiments and all that, I would find it very difficult to be up there and not have an instance where I would cry. Whether it is a happy or a sad cry or like a, an awe sort of cry, I feel like the emotions that people experience on the ISS are quite profound. I mean, looking down at every single human that exists every day and circling around an earth over 10 times a day, you get to see every single part of it over and over again. So I feel like it would be quite a profound experience. I know that that's why so many people dream of being up there. Definitely, and, you know, humans here on Earth every day experience quite profound emotions. And so if you're up there, I, I would imagine it's going to be that times 100. So of course you're going to cry. Yeah. Among other things. Yeah. But it's, it's cool to see that visual and also... Going through these videos, it was fun to see how kind of everybody has similar questions. Yeah. And how Chris just kind of takes them and is like, yep, this is how life is. And it kind of makes you feel like there is no dumb question mm -hmm. to ask, which is always good in um, the realm of science. Yeah. It also has that spirit of when you take the time to consider people's questions and where they come from you can often find really interesting things to talk about or like fun things to share and learn. So I love that. So now to introduce our debrief section, we have American astronaut Scott Kelly. And if you're wondering, oh, Scott Kelly, that might sound a bit familiar. Mark Kelly, the senator for Arizona, is Scott Kelly's twin brother. Both of them have been to space. And Scott Kelly was sent up to space for a prolonged period of time, almost a year, because they wanted to study how his body changed from a long-term space flight 
compared to his twin brother. They had the perfect control to see what that difference was like. So um, he talks about the difficulty adjusting back to Earth when you come from space, your body gets really swollen. A lot of, yeah, blood flow has to when adjust. When you come back. Yeah. It seemed, Ooh. I mean, he's like, I can tell he's trying to kind of grimace through the pain, but the body's feeling it coming back it to Earth. does not seem like a fun experience. And also your emotions. It's not just yeah. the physical. Your, your entire world or experience is changing. Yeah. Be really difficult. Let's yeah. hear from him. All right. You seem to be walking a, a little funny. That's the effects of this, right? Yeah, my legs are not feeling good. Astronaut Scott Kelly is still getting used to walking on Earth again. The soreness is just one of the effects of spending nearly a year in zero gravity. My legs are a little swollen still from the, you know, all the fluid that shifts up to our heads and uh, in space gets now pushed back down into my legs. Your body's been through some stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's currently still... I'll, I'll show it. you my legs later when the cameras get turned off. Okay. <laughs> but just so the viewers know, you yeah. it's just slow, swollen. It's all that fluid goes yeah. back, back down there. Yeah. What was the toughest part about it? Yeah, I think it's, you know, uh, for me, it's Delphine, being away from Scott your Kelly, loved ones, your, your friends, your family. A year is not short, but it was very rewarding. It was uh, enjoyable. It was something that uh, I feel privileged to having got to do. NASA is testing the effects of long-duration space travel for a future mission to Mars. And Kelly came with a huge bonus, an identical twin, astronaut Mark Kelly, who could be studied on Earth to highlight how the time and space impacted Scott. I do clearly recognize that there's a difference between 159 days, which is my previous flight, and this right. experience at 340. So, you know, I'm pretty sure they're going to see differences between, you know, me in space for that long and him on Earth without, without question. Kelly posted more than 700 stunning images on social media. The view struck him, too. I'm normally like the more the like the tough fighter pilot kind of guy but yeah. not after spending a year in space i think i'm a little bit more compassionate now so it changed you i think it does i think it does change you when you spend all this time uh removed and and detached from earth and you follow what's going on on earth and you know mostly what the news reports is is not good stuff you look down we, below we should, and yeah we should be doing better we can do better got this great planet down there let's take care of it and let's do a better job so while we may not have actually ventured up into the International Space Station, I think that our hearts very much did. And with that being said, I think it is the perfect time to debrief about our mission. A little mission debrief. Special edition. NASA edition. Special edition debrief. So I would like this debrief to be centered around... What, what is something that, I guess, piqued your curiosity looking through all those videos? I mean, we, saw, we got a lot of answers from Chris, but I would imagine that a lot of those answers came with more questions. So what are some of the, the bigger picture things that you wonder about the ISS? I think the biggest takeaway I found actually came from the Scott Kelly video. And how we talked about that when he first went up, he was a fighter pilot, maybe kind of harder around the edges individual. And when he came back, he was a lot more compassionate. And that came from truly just looking at Earth and seeing every human being alive at one time. That's incredible to me. And specifically when he mentioned... You know, the way we keep up with what's happening on Earth is the news. And that must just be so interesting to be fully removed from any human situation. Being quite literally miles and miles and miles away from it, but still feeling attached because that's the human race. And you are a part of that. And there's people on planet earth that you care about and so you're still you know you still care about what's happening but in the same way now you're kind of in your own 
world, quite literally. That's very emotionally complex. And when we decided to do this episode, that never, that never even crossed my mind. But I thought that was really, really beautiful. And, you know, people will say, oh, going to space changes you. Well, of course it does, and this is why. You know, a lot of people talk about having, like, near-death experiences or things that change them very quickly, and you realize just how so many of your problems or conflicts are so meaningless. And I bet that effect is very similar in space and how you must just come back thinking about how the way humans operate is just so wrong so much of the time. Having that that greater picture being shown to you because you can see pictures of our universe like when the Hubble telescope came out with those new photos. I mean, it's mind-blowing. But seeing that with your own eyes, there, I'm sure there's just nothing like that experience and you would forever be a changed individual. I think that's the cool part about space exploration. Like the videos we watched about living on the ISS, that stuff's cool too. We have to know the basics if we're ever going to get out there for longer periods of time. But the emotional side is just as, if not more, interesting to me. I'm, I am so happy that you said what you said about, or within this debrief, because you touched on one of the things that I really believe at my core, which is that when we think beyond Earth, when we think cosmically, it becomes very unifying for people. And I think that the International Space Station is a great relic or a symbol or an idea, whatever it is to you, it is a great example of what that could look like. I forget the, the, the name of this researcher, but there is a researcher out there, and we'll link him right here, um, that leads a lab that's designed to study what it's like to live in space or living in space long-term and to think about space exploration. And their whole idea with that lab is while exploring our solar system with people and living on the moon or Mars might seem like these big science fiction ideas, a lot of the problems that we have to solve when thinking like that are incredibly important for us on Earth. And I think that there is also this element of everything on the International Space Station has to be designed to fit a human need or to make life possible up there or research possible. And so that sort of attention to detail, that care for people, there's a lot of brilliant, brilliant minds that go into just putting all the nuts and bolts together for these things that they fling out into space for crying out loud. It's, a, it's an incredible collaborative effort. It's a great symbol of international collaboration. Two, I think that what I take away from all of this is I feel like my younger self that was in my bedroom just watching these videos back to back to back. I feel like I've kind of reconnected with that kid. But with a little bit more now to, to work with in terms of how, how I conduct myself moving forward. So it was a joy finding all these videos, finding some of my favorite ones, making a fun story with all of it. But I am so happy that you got to glimpse into that little, you know, this how special life is part of it too, because that's what I see the most of with that. So, right. That's it. Those are my thoughts. All right. I think that concludes our debrief and our episode on the International Space Station. Yes. But 
it doesn't end here. We want to know your thoughts on what you think about space or these videos, or if you've seen NASA TV. Highly recommend if yes. you haven't. So let us know in the comments below or on our social medias. Can I tell you something podcast, something spelled S-M-T-H. Perfect. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> all right. Well, we will see you all next week for another episode of Can I Tell You Something? All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.